What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey friends, happy holidays and thanks so much for making 2017 a great year for the uh, Bill Press Show. Of course, we're taking the week off, but we wanted to bring you some of our favorite interviews from 2017, along with some very special programming that I and our team have put together for all of you to enjoy during this Christmas holiday. We certainly hope 2017 was a big year of resistance for all of you, and we wish you a happy new year and promise we will keep the resistance alive with your help during 2018. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Nobody can argue that Bernie uh, Sanders hasn't had a major impact on the Democratic Party. But will those changes hold up? Are lifelong Democrats adopting a platform and a policy now that looks similar to Bernie Sanders? Well, we sat down with two people who've covered Sanders and the Democrats to see what lasting impact he's had and is having on the party. Alex Seitzwald from NBC News and Claire Foran from The Atlantic. It's our special roundtable on the making of Bernie Sanders. So it's been, believe it or not, over a year now uh, since uh, Donald Trump uh, became president of the United States uh, and well over a year since the uh, Democratic primary of 2016. Uh, where we talked a lot about Bernie Sanders and the impact uh, he was having in that primary and on the Democratic Party. A good time to look back now and see what impact Bernie is still having, lasting impact on the Democratic Party, uh, with two of our good friends who cover politics. uh, That's their bread and butter. Uh, Claire Foran from The Atlantic. Hello, Claire. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. And Alex Seitzwald from uh, MSNBC, NBC News, uh, political reporter. Hi, Alex. Hey, Bill. Bernie, is his impact, uh, Claire, do you think, uh, long gone or still alive? No, I mean, I think that Bernie's surprisingly kind of more kind of expectation shattering uh, presidential run has definitely had a lasting impact. And when you look at on policy, I feel like the party's center of gravity has definitely shifted left. When you look at, you know, he introduced single pair. That was his sort of big legislative push. And then you saw, you know, Senators Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, people kind of jumping to support that even before we knew kind of exactly what the policy would be. When you look at the races that we've seen, like some of the bigger marquee races in 2017, like New Jersey governor's race, Virginia governor's race, you saw these candidates, not necessarily people that I would say are, uh, you know, they have kind of elements of establishment to them, but are still kind of running as progressive. So obviously, I think a lot of candidates kind of feel like that's where they need to be or kind of need to style themselves. Um, I don't think that it's like, oh, progressives completely taken over the party by any means, but I think there's still been uh, obvious shifts to the left. Yeah. So Bernie's said that from the beginning, Alex, that his goal was not just to win an election, but to start a movement. And I think he succeeded in that. I mean, he gave name and organized and galvanized something that was already out there, but then he brought it into a much higher level. There's no doubt that 
uh, he and his movement have changed the face of the Democratic Party. Well, Claire, you recently interviewed Keith uh, Ellison, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, does he feel that he's a, uh, a sharing the power with Tom Perez in the DNC, <laughs> that he's really a force there that, that in terms of policy process on all of that? I mean, I think Keith Ellison definitely knows that he's sort of viewed as um, sort of the progressive movement and kind of this movement that's intertwined with Senator Sanders, kind of the best uh, shot at at kind of influencing what's happening at the DNC. And I think he takes that very seriously and wants to be seen as sort of having an influence on changing the party. Um, But at the same time, I, I mean, I think, you know, one thing that will be kind of a potentially a key test of that is the Unity Reform Commission recommendations that will be coming up and then kind of what happens to those. So what kind of reforms or not, you know, does the party sort of adopt in terms of things like superdelegates, um, whether primaries are open, closed, kind of the number of caucuses, things like that. And I think when I talked to Keith Ellison, I mean, I think he said he does feel like it's a different DNC. It's a more grassroots, sort of more connected to the grassroots DNC, uh, a DNC with a bit of a different mentality in it for, you know, winning elections across the country, not just the presidential race. But, you know, when I asked him some questions like, what what reforms are we going to see? I think he was very much like he wants to see them, but he wasn't, you know, he was kind of like, we'll see what happens. But Bernie today, uh, Alex, is the most popular politician in the country, right? When you say, I mean, how's Bernie using that power? Yeah, I mean, he's continuing to force his agenda. And, and yeah, Keith Ellison, Bernie Sanders, their people will not be satisfied. That's natural. I mean, it takes a long time to, to execute these things. There's two games he's playing. Inside the Senate caucus, he is now in the leadership. He is uh, exerting influence there. Claire mentioned the single-payer bill, which he managed to get basically every 2020 potential candidate on board with. Yeah, he had 16 Democratic senators standing with him. Yeah. Phenomenal. And and very prominent ones. Uh, Chuck yes. Schumer clearly listens to what Bernie Sanders has to say and pays attention to it. Uh and then there's the outside game where he's going around the country and holding these big rallies as if it's still the campaign. He attracts you know thousands of people to these things in a way that most politicians can't do. He did that on health care. He's done that on taxes. He's done that on other things. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the, where his power comes from is that is he uses that outside energy to influence the inside game. But there's still this tension between the Clintonistas and the Bernie bros. Of course, yeah. And they're... And they're Always will be. I mean, they're, they're, that's natural. That's the, the entire Bernie movement was founded in opposition to this establishment. It doesn't exist without there being that tension there. Once they take over, they've put themselves out of a job, if they ever do uh, really take over. There, there's, you know, ideological uh, differences in the party, not as wide as there used to be, but you do still have moderates in there. And there's people who just disagree tactically, stylistically, with Bernie Sanders, they think he should be a Democrat. There's, there's no resolution to that. So it, there was all this denial, uh, Claire, during the primary that the DNC was in Hillary's camp. They kept denying it, and the Clinton campaign kept denying it. Then Donna Brazil writes her book. So um, when you talk to Keith Ellison, what was his feeling about the, you know, the DNC stabbing him in the back? Well, I, um, you know, and. I, I asked uh, Keith Ellison in light of, you know, Donna Brizzle's uh, 
claims and allegations about the arrangement that the Clinton campaign had with the DNC. And of course, Alex has done really great reporting on, on the actual memo and, and should speak to that because it's super complicated. And I feel like I had to, you know, you have to kind of sift through what Donna Brazil is claiming and then what's actually the case. But if nothing else. No, but, yeah, but and on that point, Alex, yeah, to and, your credit. You know, the Clintons, again, I was on television, they were saying, oh, well, Bernie had the same deal. So, no, you know, we, everybody signed the same paper. You you did the reporting to point out, no, no, that's not true. The Clintons had a supplemental deal, which put the DNC, gave them controls over the, some controls over the DNC. I, yeah. Right. So they. Yeah. I'll come back to you in just a second. Yeah. But. Yeah. So the the Clinton campaign and the Sanders campaign both signed the same boilerplate agreement. But on top of that, right. the Clinton campaign in uh, summer of 2015. So this is you know way before the primaries signed this agreement that gave them pretty substantial control over hiring and spending decisions inside the DNC, uh, including things like appointing a communications director from one of two candidates that they hand selected by September of 2015. So this is you know months before the first caucus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in theory, the Bernie Sanders campaign or any campaign could have cut a similar deal, but they were never given that offer explicitly from the DNC. And when they were asked, when they were told about the, the negotiations with the Clinton campaign, they were told that there had been negotiations, but not that a deal had been cut and that the Clinton campaign was already influencing decisions inside the DNC. Right. Now, you know, we should say the DNC was in major debt by now. They needed a bailout from the Clinton campaign. And that's was the, the background here. And I, I haven't seen, you know, they, they say I haven't seen any evidence to say that this affected the outcome of the primaries. But without a doubt, the effect was one campaign having more influence over the referee of this thing than the other campaigns. No doubt. Yeah. The referee right. was being paid for by one of the teams. So back to Keith Ellison's for Yeah. Response. So I talked to Keith Ellison, you know, about um, about all of that and basically what he thinks you know, if he thinks the DNC and specifically uh, Chairman Tom Perez has done enough to address the concerns that because, you know, for obviously for Bernie Sanders supporters, this is sort of just a vindication of all of the uh, perception and concern and, and a lot of the concern that came out of the WikiLeaks that showed, you know, top DNC officials kind of disparaging Sanders and his chances. Um, and basically what he said is he kind of dodged the question of whether Perez has done enough to address it. And he sort of said that. He feels like it's it's important that going forward that the DNC needs to have a formal policy that makes clear that no candidate, no campaign can ever get any kind of an unfair advantage or inside track in the party. And um, and, you know, he doesn't think that it's enough to just say it. That there needs to actually be some kind of a formal policy. And I you know, and I think that Perez is more rhetorically kind of wanting to move past uh, the Brazil kind of book and allegations and kind of look to the future. But I think it's clear that Keith Ellison, I mean, when they first came out, he said, you know, this can't just be dismissed. And I think that he wants to see uh, some kind of, you know, written policy that says this can never happen again. And um, and he said that, you know, that should be the case, not just to send a message to voters that the DNC won't play favorites, but also to send a message to candidates and campaigns that that's not how things work. But what evidence is there any evidence that the dnc has changed well it's a uh, it's a tbd uh tom perez has said good things i think um he and it's notable that he had came out after donna brazil's book on a saturday night and put out this document uh laying out a bunch of reforms that he wants to implement so i think people who say there was nothing there well, why did Tom Perez feel compelled to do this, you know, mm -hmm. scramble on a Saturday yeah, night? Right. Uh, and one of the things that was in there was that all joint fundraising agreements, which are these agreements that we're talking about, will be transparent from now on. 
Um, a, you know, he didn't rule out that there would be these kinds of agreements in the future, but that they would be transparent, which I think goes goes a long way. Uh, the big thing that Claire mentioned is this Unity and Reform Commission, which is still going on. There's not uh, most of the the action there is not about the internal workings of the DNC so much as the, how the nominating contest works, superdelegates, mm-hmm. caucuses, that kinds of thing. Uh, but there, there was a lot of frustration in the DNC, even from Clinton Obama people, about the way things were run. You know, long before even 2016 started. So I, I do think there was there's an appetite there. We'll see if you, if Tom Price can deliver on it. Uh, and you, you mentioned Claire, this unity. One of the big tests is this. I forget what the name of the commission is, but there's the commission. Larry Cohen is one of the co-chairs uh, to look into some substantive changes in the way the DNC operates uh, in a primary to mm-hmm. assure that they're like right in the middle and not in anybody's camp. Uh, and some of the problems that that we talked about and were pretty obvious, I thought, during the primary, superdelegates, closed primaries, what else? I don't know. There's a whole list of them. Where, yeah. w- w- What's happening on those? And what what's the likelihood, Claire that, well, and, and Alex both? I'll say I, I think it was maybe just yesterday, but Politico had uh, an interesting story that saying that Tim Kaine, so, you know, Hillary Clinton's running mate, had sent a letter to Tom Perez saying that he would support ending the superdelegate system. And I thought that was an interesting gauge of, you know, you have this person who uh, very much associated with, obviously, the Clinton run, um, you know, now basically siding essentially with kind of where Sanders backers come down on the superdelegate system saying, why do, why do we have this? You know, basically sort of party elites getting uh, to vote um you know, kind of regardless of what their state decides or regardless of what the the voters mm-hmm. say. And um, I, I think seeing that um, and just seeing, you know, that's still superdelegate reform is something Keith Ellison is pushing for. It's something Bernie Sanders is pushing for. I would... I would not be surprised if we, you know, Alex, especially if there's point? more calls. Yeah, for yeah. The start there. So, yeah. so the, the yeah the Uniform Commission, uh, mm-hmm. their final report comes out, I believe, December eighth. So we're we're just coming up on it. Uh, see the, and um, superdelegate reform is a mandate there from people that I've <laughs> talked to. It's going to likely be a uh, compromise. So they won't get rid of superdelegates entirely, but they're going to do this thing, which is a little bit complicated, where DNC members who are currently superdelegates, there's like 450 of them. They'll have to vote proportionally to the state that they come from, however that primary caucus went. Then members of Congress, governors, senators who are also superdelegates, they can vote however they want. So you kind of create like a super, superdelegate system, but it'll be a much smaller number of people who can actually vote uh, how they want. There's a, On the open primary thing, that's tougher because the DNC has limited influence on in what they can do. Because um, a lot of its states it's, get right, to decide. It's run by states, run yeah. But they're going to encourage... Um, more places to do state-run primaries, which would give the DNC more influence and would provide more uniform kind of uh, say over how things run. Because a lot of these primaries and caucuses were just poorly run, too, last year. Like, even the Iowa caucus, which is supposedly, you know, supposed to be really good, had issues. So they're, they're going to try to tighten that up. Uh, the classic case that people talk about is New York State, right? right. I think now uh, to vote in November 2018 in New York State as a Democrat, it's already too late now because you would have had to have registered, I think, in September or October of 2017 as a Democrat in order to qualify to vote over a year later in New York, which is absurd. Yeah. I mean, it, it just as as a former state chair, right, and a candidate myself, 
that that provide prevents you any opportunity of attracting new people, getting people to change their registration, getting people to register for the first time. Right? It's a total. It, 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 it's it's insane. It's a total incumbent protection program, total. and you see it a lot yes. in in states where there's one party that's really dominant. So in New York, yeah. it's Democratic Party, yeah. because people are more worried about primaries than they're worried about generals. So they want to limit right. who can yes. participate in a primary. That's like a case though where it's it's the DNC can't tell New York State to change its laws. Mm-hmm. That's state law. But if they switch to a, a party-run primary instead of a state-run primary, so the New York Democratic Party would run that primary, then the party could have more influence and could change things around potentially. Right. Um, so uh, the, the, those things come up before. I think they first have to be adopted <coughs> by the so, um, committee, right? And yeah. then by the DNC itself. The rules yeah. committee first, I think, in the oh, February yeah. meeting and then the full DNC later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say. So, I mean, I think the... The fear among you know some Sanders supporters that are that are on the Unity Commission that are are worried that maybe the reforms won't be adopted as, as extensively as they like or sort of too, um, you know, kind of what they're hoping. Uh, the fear is that you know these reforms could get introduced and they could go before the Rules Committee and they could just get voted down or you know not get voted uh, to be adopted by the by the full DNC and basically kind of not yeah. go anywhere. Right. So when Bernie says, um, I. We need to ch- change the Democratic Party, right? We need to reform the Democratic Party. We need a different Democratic Party. What does he mean by that? Is he talking process? Is he talking policy? Is he talking people or all three or what? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it's all three because, you know, these these reforms that we're talking about are more kind of process-oriented, like how you run yeah. the nominating contest, right. how you operate the party. He obviously wants to influence and change policy and is, you know, kind of starting down proposing those specific ideas, starting kind of with single payer and then with people. You know, he always talks about that as well and that it's not just that, you know, he wants people to support him and his agenda, but that he wants to basically have – um, you know, candidates kind of running in his mold across the country. I, I guess it's also, Alex, money, isn't it? The way they raise mm-hmm. money. Yeah. You know, he, he talks about the Democratic Party. You can't tell the difference from the Republican Party. They're both just creatures of Wall Street. Right. And that's he would, why he would funded his campaign with small dollar online donations. And, you know, he'd like to move to a larger thing like that where the entire fund, party is funded that way. Uh, other people who would call themselves realists in the party, but he would call them, you know, establishment, would say that's great if you're Bernie Sanders who has a national name idea, who's the most popular politician in America, but that doesn't work for random state legislator in, mm-hmm. you know, Virginia or a congressional race in Texas or whatever. Um, and so we need to collect these big checks. That's unfortunately the the, the system that we have now. And that's an ongoing debate uh, inside the party and um you know, it also speaks to another issue that all a lot of this has come up around the DNC. The DNC itself has had a lot of trouble raising money, uh, in part because of issues specific to the DNC. It lost a lot of confidence in all across the party. But parties in general are just losing influence, official parties, compared to super PACs and outside groups where a big donor can just cut a single check. So the, the people on the other side of that say... Look, if we tell those big donors that we don't want any of their money, they're just going to go to a super PAC and do their own thing, and then we're going to have zero control and there'll be zero transparency over what they're doing. So I think that's a, that's an ongoing debate in the party. Right. Now, one of the very first conversations that I had Bernie with Bernie back in 2014, I believe, or early 2015, where he told me that when we first talked about his running for possible, possibly running for president is that he realized, had come to realize that the only way people take you seriously and take your ideas seriously is if you run for president. 
Um, so we ran for president, and people do take him seriously now. Is it true, therefore, that the only way people will continue to take him seriously is if he runs for president again? I think he needs to keep the threat alive. <laughs> uh, is that all it is? I don't know. I mean, I, look, if you're him, he clearly got in. You know better than me, Bill, but I, I think he clearly got in not expecting that he was actually going to be president of the United States. Totally right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, there maybe there's a chance, you know, and, and that's pretty tempting. If you're what's the old joke? Like I could write you a list of 100 senators who want to be president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get into politics and if you have ideas, of course you want to be president. If he thinks there's a chance, so I, th- I, I think he, there, there's no reason for him to not look at it. Is he running, Claire? I mean, <clears throat> he's certainly doing every. At least from my vantage point, I feel like he's doing what he would need to do to run again if he wants to run again. I mean, one of the things is just that he never, he hasn't really. And Alex was mentioning this, but he hasn't really stopped campaigning. I mean, he's going out and doing <laughs> these big events. Um, you certainly saw this during healthcare, and I got to tag along on on one trip to West Virginia and then to Kentucky when he was going out and campaigning, and this was against the GOP repeal. But, I mean, it was really, um, you know, it felt like he was still campaigning. I I don't... He's also campaigning for candidates. Uh, Yeah, has he been going and doing, like, that a lot? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. local candidates, Mm -hmm. state legislative candidates, mayor... Uh, some other case, in addition to, as you say, these big Just rallies that he's holding. Rallies, yeah. Right. yeah, I mean, and, all of which I think enforces yeah. your reinforces your point that he's doing yeah. what you would expect a candidate for president to be doing. Yeah, today. I mean, he's having he's certainly doing things to keep you know really high visibility and high profile and kind of get out there at the at the state level, kind of just getting um, you know people to show up to these events and. Uh, and I think he's obviously adopting. I mean, it's actually interesting to think about his agenda, too, because I think when he first started running in the primary, you know, he was money and kind of getting big money and kind of Wall Street as, you know, we need checks on Wall Street was sort of what I would say his kind of signature uh, was. But then I think he is actually he's working to, um, you know, single payer was a big thing that he talked about during the campaign. But really getting out there now and putting the policy specifics on it shows that I think he is working to develop a really uh, specific. And and if he continues, you know, along that with with other issues, too, not just single payer to kind of put together a really uh, specific and kind of build support for really specific policy ideas that he did. Yes, he championed during the campaign. But now. I think there's more um, he's kind of putting more weight to it to be able to say, here's the legislation, here's the bill, here's the people that have signed on. And if he continues to do that, too, I mean, I think that certainly is. So, Alex, for... he's in a Bernie's in a position uh, to run again. Uh, he's also in a position, I would think. Would you agree to if, if he's not the candidate to influence who the candidate will be? Yeah. And, you, you know, you run for president until you're not running for president when you're a guy like him. And everything, there's no reason for him not to do it. Whether he run, if he runs, then he, obviously he should run now. If he wants to be a kingmaker, which is what you're saying, then absolutely he should accrue as much political capital now as possible before passing the baton to Elizabeth Warren or whoever else it might be. Uh, and uh, if he wants to just maintain power in the Senate and grow more clout there, then he should run for president too, because he's right. We, you know, we, we in the media tend to stop paying attention to you as soon as you say, officially, you are no way running uh, for president. Right. Now, the one thing that Bernie also, and I mentioned earlier about a movement, is he said, I want a movement, and part of the movement was a, this organization that he, he has created called Our Revolution mm-hmm. um, to carry forth Bernie's goals in terms of both policy and also particularly the focus on 
getting progressives elected, city councils, mayors, state legislators, Congress, and Senate. What do we know about our revolution? You know, the other pres- presidential candidates have tried to do this and failed. Is Bernie going to be the exception that proves the rule? What do you hear? What do you What do you see? It's a It's a tough thing, and it was a very ambitious project when it launched. Um, I think they definitely had some successes, but I've also heard some complaining from people in the from you know Bernie Sanders people, people who are in this movement who are disappointed by our revolution and think it hasn't really lived up to uh, the potential. Sanders himself has kind of kept his distance from it, which makes it tough, right? I mean, and, and mm-hmm. legally there are issues about him uh, fundraising for it or putting his name on it. Um, but they basically wanted to create an, a party parallel to the official party, and that's a, a huge task. Uh, he put you know, people in charge of it who don't have a ton of experience doing this this kind of thing, people who are good, loyal Sanders Democrats, but they're not the, you know, the most experienced campaign people. So I think it's still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And what do you yeah, think, I mean, I agree. And, you know, Alex and I both reported on when our revolution was first formed. Obviously, there was sort of a, you know, kind of drama at the beginning and kind of an exodus of former campaign staffers who were dissatisfied with the way it had been legally set up and concerned that it was going to end up not being able to kind of help candidates and kind of work in parallel with candidates the way that they wanted it to. Um, and I think that, you know, it's still unclear to me exactly how much help it is when they endorse a candidate you know they have you know a a mixed record some of their candidates win some of their candidates lose uh it's hard for me to kind of clearly say you know did those candidates win because they got the endorsement i mean i think what's interesting about our revolution now is so you have uh nina turner is is the head of our revolution and she's you know known for being very um you know not kind of shying away from sort of a fight and um, I think to put it lightly and I think it's interesting to see how our revolution is kind of fitting into the Sanders agenda one thing that's interesting is like on single payer you have Senator Sanders himself saying you know in response to reporter questions that this is not going to be something he's going to make a litmus test issue you know he's not going to say oh if a yeah. candidate doesn't support this get out whether that's a down ballot candidate or otherwise but when you look at our revolution Nina Turner has basically said it is a litmus test. I mean, I don't know that she's used those exact words, but she's basically said, if you're not supporting this and you're a candidate, you know, what are you doing? And um, I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, I can't say I don't know that that's a strategy that they sort of decided to work in tandem. Maybe they're not, you know, kind of coordinating that message, but it does kind of create at least as long as she's the head of it. I think it'll create more. um kind of rhetorical pressure and more of sort of, you know, I think she'll be willing to sort of say a lot of his agenda items are litmus tests and then whether or not he's saying that that's going to create uh, more pressure on yeah. candidates. to adopt no, I mean, it. So I think we can safely say that uh, to the surprise of all of us, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, has become a real force, certainly in American politics uh, and in the Democratic Party, uh, has already had a huge impact, uh, more than we expected. Uh, and it's going to continue to have a huge impact in some form or another um, for a long time. Maybe the most influential certain uh, politician uh, of our lifetime, Claire Foran from The Atlantic. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in. And Alex Seidswald, as always, NBC News. Go, go, go. Thanks, Bill. It's been a huge, right. huge year. It has been, <laughs> indeed. Uh, Bernie Sanders, moving forward. Who knows where we go from here? Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. 
Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Oh, if only Bernie Sanders had been our nominee and if only Bernie Sanders were our president today. But just before Donald Trump was inaugurated, we sat down with Senator Sanders and everything he predicted of how bad the Trump president was going to be has turned out to be true. Okay, Donald Trump's going to be sworn in as the 45th president of the United States. What does that mean for Americans? I think it's a frightening and challenging moment. Uh, I think we have never had a candidate run for president who in many ways ran his campaign based on bigotry, uh, based on uh, xenophobia, based on sexism, based on racism. And it is absolutely imperative that the American people respond in a united way to tell Mr. Trump that he is not going to push those type of ideas on us. We're not going backwards. We have struggled too long against racism and sexism and homophobia and xenophobia. We're going to unite, and we're not going to let him do some of the terrible things uh, that he talked about doing. Some of the terrible things, specifically, what policy well, do you think are the biggest, biggest dangers? Immigration. I mean, that's right up there. Look, uh, at the end of the day, what Republicans want to do, what's in their DNA, is to give huge tax breaks to billionaires to exacerbate the unbelievable level of income and wealth inequality we have. And then they want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and federal aid to education, environmental protection. That's basically what they want to do. But you know what? 90% of the American people don't agree with them, so they got a problem. They're not going to run 30-second ads and say, hey, vote for me. I'm going to cut Social Security and give tax breaks to billionaires. So what do they have to do? It's the old story. It's what demagoguery is always about, is you deflect attention away from those issues, and you get one group of people uh, fighting another group of people. And I think the scapegoat right now is the immigrant community. And we have got to stand absolutely alongside of the 11 million undocumented people in this country, many of whom have been here for years. They're working, they're paying taxes, they're law-abiding, they're raising their kids, and we cannot allow Mr. Trump or anybody else to suddenly throw them out of this country. That is unacceptable, that is immoral, that is not what America is supposed to be. Uh, but it is, you know, his recent comment on John Lewis is just a continuation of his, to say the least, insensitivity to be strong in his racism. Uh, regarding the African-American community. Remember, this is a man who led the so-called Bertha effort trying to suggest that Barack Obama, our first African-American president, was not a legitimate president. Uh, that is racism. So we've got to be, all of our antenna have got to be up. We've got to stop him in every way. The other area mm -hmm. uh, that we should all be very nervous about, I just five minutes ago was talking with Governor Perry, uh, Rick Perry, who is uh, Trump's nominee to be Secretary of Energy. Uh, here is a presidential candidate, uh, Mr. Trump, who told the American people that in his view, climate change was a hoax. Well, I got news for him. It is not a hoax. The scientific community is virtually 100 united, 100 percent, in telling us that it is a great environmental uh, planetary crisis. And we've got to transform our energy system. I worry about that. And I'll tell you what else I worry about, Bill. And that is when Trump, you'll remember a month or so ago, sent out a tweet uh, which said that he would have won the popular vote if it weren't for millions of illegal people, illegal voters. Who that voted? is total nonsense. That's insanity. But it is a message being sent to Republican governors all over this country that you should continue the effort toward voter suppression. So I worry about his bigotry. 
I worry about his ignorance regarding uh, climate change. I worry about attacks on the fundamentals of American democracy and voter suppression, etc. You mentioned John Lewis. Do you agree with John Lewis that Donald Trump is not a legitimate president? I think those uh, you could use. Look, do I think that the Russians played a role in electing Trump? Yeah, I do. I think Trump is going to be inaugurated on Friday. And what we have got to do is figure out the best strategy in terms of resisting uh, some of the very negative ideas that he have and working with them when we can. Uh, now, Trump, for an, interestingly enough, let's give two or three areas. Uh, Trump just last week, he said, and by the way, it's more than many re Democratic presidents have said, he said that Farmer is getting away with murder. Well, in my view, that's an understatement. Uh, Farmer, uh, which is the, the major pharmaceutical industries, made $50 billion in profit. Five major companies made $50 billion in profit last time we had information. Meanwhile, one out of five Americans can't afford the prescription drugs they need. The cost of the prescription drugs are soaring. If Trump really does believe that pharma is out of control, if he really wants to work with us in taking on the drug companies and lowering the cost of the prescription drugs in this country, we're going to have some very strong legislation for him to support. We're going to demand that the government, that Medicare negotiate drug prices with the pharmaceutical industry. And we are going to fight for so-called reimportation, which allows distributors and pharmacists to buy lower cost drugs around the world because we pay by far the highest prices in the world. Uh, so if Trump is serious about that, let's work on that. Trump said, Bill, uh, during his campaign, this is really interesting. He so said, on, the, on the drugs, if I can, is that's one area where you believe possibly Democrats and Donald Trump could work together? Possibly. Now, the problem with Trump is he's a pathological liar. I mean, and I, and I hate to say that because I don't say that about, you know, my Republican colleagues. They're conservatives. It doesn't make this mean them to be liars. They believe what they believe. You don't know what Trump actually believes, if anything. All I can tell you uh, is he has stated on more than one occasion, uh, most recently, that uh, Farmer is getting away with murder. That's an exact quote. If he is serious about that, if he doesn't change his mind tomorrow, yeah. We have very specific legislation that we are in the process of introducing, I and other Democrats, uh, which would substantially lower the cost of prescription drugs in this country. And if Trump wants to work with us on that, great, let's do it. That's what the American people want. Another area, mm -hmm. uh, Trump has obviously ran his campaign uh, truth on, on the fact that the American economy has lost millions of decent paying jobs as a result of disastrous trade policies, NAFTA permanent normal trade relations with China. Now, again, with Trump, should we believe what he said uh, during the campaign? Is he really going to fight for policies that will make fundamental changes in our trade policies? I don't know the answer to that. Nobody does. Uh, but if he, in fact, is serious about changing our trade policy so we protect American jobs and American workers rather than the CEOs of large corporations, we've got legislation uh, that we're going to introduce. We'd love to have him on board that legislation. Infrastructure would be a third example. Mm -hmm. He's talked a lot about our crumbling infrastructure. Our infrastructure is crumbling. Now, the ideas that he came up with were preposterous in terms of how you fund it, which is giving huge tax credits to large multinational corporations, which is a totally absurd, just a giveaway to corporate America. But if he really wants to rebuild our roads and our bridges and our water systems and wastewater plants with sensible financing, yeah, let's work on that and create jobs doing that. We'll come back to the inauguration for a second. Do you plan to attend the inauguration on Friday? Yeah, I, I do attend. Do you, do, are you afraid that your presence might be seen as an 
affirmation of no, his presidency? Look, you know, that's, that's his media stuff, I think, to a large degree. Trump is going to be elected, is going to be uh, inaugurated. Uh, that's the fact. The question that we have to deal with, not whether you attend or you don't attend, media is interested in that. The question is, what do you do to stop his disastrous ideas? What do you do to rally the American people to fight for a progressive agenda? That's what we've got to focus on. And I want to get to that. Is, is one of the first steps not to approve every one of his nominees? You have to look at his nominees, nominee by nominee, and I am, and I will tell you that his nominees, by and large, with some exceptions, are disastrous. I mean, he had the opportunity. He ran, you know, we can all agree, an unconventional campaign, right? We can all agree on that. And he was to absolutely... Be kind. Put, to, to be, be kind. To be kind. All right. You know, and uh, he could have come in and said, look, you know, I took on the Republican establishment. I'm not beholden. In fact, as you know, he was very critical of, of Republicans during his, his, his campaign. Uh, he could have come in and really said, look, I am not beholden to special interests. I'm a multi-billionaire. I'm not beholden to the right wing of the Republican Party. I'm going to appoint the best people I can. And it really, you know, people would have said, wow, that's pretty good. Uh, but in fact, what he chose to do is not even do what George W. Bush did, go to a center-right, by and large, with some exceptions. He really appointed right-wing extremists, really uh, some very, very extreme people. I mean, you have this guy, Pruitt, uh, who is nominated to be secretary of the uh, EPA, EPA, who doesn't believe in environmental protection. So you have a, a guy to be nominated to be secretary of the Environmental Protection Agency who doesn't believe in environmental protection. Uh, Rick Perry, obviously, uh, throughout his career, uh, has been uh, skeptical about whether climate change is real. I think he referred to it like Trump did as a hoax. And this guy's going to be head of the energy uh, department at a time when we need to listen to the scientists transform our energy system away from fossil fuel. You know, another disastrous appointment. You got a person who's nominated to be secretary of energy, Ms. DeVos. Uh, uh, education. To be, I'm sorry, to be uh, secretary of education, uh, uh, Betsy DeVos, who basically has been at war against public education. On and on it goes. So, you know, I think you look at the nominees one by one. You don't make a blanket statement, but these are Many of them are really, really bad nominations. Are you prepared to tell us today, uh, do you plan to vote for Jeff Sessions for Attorney General? Look, I think what I have said is that I, before you make that statement, you got to have a hearing uh, and you have to talk to him. I have not talked to Sessions yet. In fact, I think we have something online this week. Uh, but I will say this. So all that I'm saying is I don't think it's appropriate to, you know, it doesn't matter what I say today as opposed to tomorrow or the next day or how I vote. What matters is that uh, we have an attorney general who understands that it is absolutely imperative for the federal government and the Department of Justice to do everything he or she can to end this outrage of voter suppression. All right? Is Mr. Sessions prepared to tell me, and I have not yet met with him, that he is alarmed by the kind of voter suppression the war against the ability of poor people and older people and people of color to vote? Well, I haven't heard him say that. Uh, is he prepared to tell me that he will protect uh, the dignity and the rights of the immigrant community? I haven't heard him say uh, that. So, you know, I, before I tell you what I'm going to do, I've got to talk to him. 
but I have very serious concerns about his nomination as well as many of uh, Trump's other nominations. I want to ask you about Obamacare. You and I agree it's not it's far from the perfect plan. Republicans in a rush to repeal it. Is it worth fighting for Obamacare? Yeah. What I think the strategy should be is to tell the Republicans that it is absolutely unconscionable uh, to be talking and moving to throw 20 million people off of health insurance. There is no doubt that thousands of people will die if they do that. If I throw you off health insurance and you get sick and you can't afford to go to a doctor or go to a hospital, you know, you're going to die unnecessarily. That's terrible. That's unacceptable. Uh, they are talking, of course, I mean, what uh, Paul Ryan and, and uh, uh, Representative Price have been talking about for years is their desire to privatize Medicare, make it into a voucher program, a total disaster. They're talking about the funding Planned Parenthood, two and a half million people, uh, many of whom are low-income women, get their health care through Planned Parenthood. You're going to throw those people, uh, deny them the right to go to Planned Parenthood, uh, an organization that provides high-quality health care. You're going to raise the price of prescription drugs for seniors if you uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act. So, yeah, I think we have to defend the Affordable Care Act, not let them uh, throw so many people, millions of people off of health insurance. But on the other hand, we have got to say as progressives, the Affordable Care Act did not go far enough. We are the only major country on earth not to provide health care to all people as a right. We need to move toward a Medicare for all single payer program, which will be far more cost effective than what we have right now, much less complicated. We have to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Medicare is going to negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical industry. We need reimportation. So the answer is, yeah, you defend the Affordable Care Act today. Simultaneously, you fight for a Medicare for all single payer program. Let's talk about the Democratic Party, if we can, Senator. What shape do you think the Democratic Party is in today after this campaign and after this uh, huge loss? Well, it's not what I think, Bill. It's what the objective evidence is. Um, we, are, uh, we are in opposition to a Republican Party, which has moved from being a center-right party to a right-wing extremist party a party that uh, believes that we should give unlimited tax breaks to billionaires and the wealthiest people in this country and wants to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and virtually every other important federal program. And guess what? Despite that ridiculous and absurd agenda, which is supported probably not by not more than 10% of the American people, Democrats managed to lose. So what we have seen in the last eight years, notwithstanding Obama's two victories. We have seen the United States Senate go Republican. We've seen the House go Republican. We are now have about two-thirds of governor's chairs are held by Republicans, some 900 legislative uh, seats in, in uh, state houses all over this country have gone from Democrat to Republican. That is a terrible record. And anyone who comes before me or before you and says, well, you know, we're doing pretty good. The, the status quo is okay. We don't need any fundamental changes in the way the Democratic Party does business. They're crazy. I mean, that is just dead wrong. It goes without saying when you have a record in which you're losing so badly, we need fundamental reforms of the Democratic Party. So how do you fix it? You fix it uh, for a start by electing uh, Keith Ellison as the new chair of the DNC. And I think what Keith understands and what I understand is that we need uh, top to bottom reform. And that means fundamentally changing the structure of the Democratic Party 
from being a top-down party controlled by what I would call a liberal elite uh, connected to a whole lot of big money interests and transforming that into a party of working people, of lower income people, of young people who are prepared to stand up and take on the establishment. I don't think the Democratic Party advances and wins elections unless it is clear as to which side it is on. You can't go around telling working people throughout this country, we're on the side of workers, we're on the side of the poor, we're on the side of the elderly, we're on the side of the sick. Oh, but by the way, we really can't take on pharma. We can't take on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we can't take on Wall Street. We can't take on corporate America. But trust us, we're really on your side. Well, you know what? Nobody believes that. All right. You remember the old um, Woody Guthrie song, Which Side Are You On? Mm -hmm. You remember that song. I won't sing it to you. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> we heard it on your album. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing it once is bad enough. You don't want to hear it again. Uh, but that is what it's about. And, and, and I'll tell you the good news here. I think more and more, uh, while there's a lot of resistance from the Democratic establishment, I think more and more Democrats understand that there has to be a profound uh, change in the way the Democratic Party does business. And I'll give you just a concrete example. I am very proud uh, that just this Sunday, two days ago, uh, working with the Democratic leadership who understands the need for ground change. Uh, we decided to do something that the Democrats have never done before in the modern history of this country. I don't know what went on 50 years ago, but certainly since I've been active, it has never been done. And that is, instead of just holding press conferences, you know, here in Washington, talking to the Washington Post, uh, what we did is organized rallies in 70 communities all over this country to rally, to bring people together, to say, you know what, you're not going to say to the Republicans, you're not going to throw 20 million people off health insurance, and you're not going to privatize Medicare or make devastating cuts in Medicaid or defund Planned Parenthood. I was in Michigan, where Senators, uh, 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 Senators Stabenow and Peters were there, Senator Schumer was there. We had 8,000 people out, which is the damn good turnout uh, for an outdoor event in January in um, Macomb County, Michigan. A great rally in Boston where uh, Elizabeth Warren was at. We had great rallies in Maryland, I think. Mm -hmm. So we're bringing people out, and this is new for the Democratic Party, actually going out, talking to people, bringing them into the, and that's the direction we've got to go. So I think we're off to a, a fairly good start. And, and in your campaign, Senator, one other factor that you've talked a lot about and you've proved in your campaign is that you can have a successful campaign without taking big money and having a super PAC. Is that part of the Democratic Party's that has reform? That has, I mean, frankly, you know, that's my view. I cannot tell you that uh, the Democratic leadership has signed off on this. But it gets back to the issue of which side you're on. And look, you know, everyone, everybody who's ever received any money from a special interest, everybody said, doesn't matter to me. I got $18 billion from the oil companies. Doesn't matter to me. I am completely impervious. I'll vote my conscience. Or I got all kinds of money from the drug companies. Doesn't matter to me. That's what everybody says. Nobody believes it. Nobody believes it. Uh, the oil companies and Wall Street and the drug companies are not stupid. They're not going to give you money unless they think they're going to get something in return. So I think, you know, the good news, I think what we can learn from my campaign is if you are prepared to stand up to Wall Street and you say, you know what, Wall Street's business model is fraud, which it is, that it's amazing that Wall Street executives have not been tossed in jail for the illegal role they played in destroying our economy in 2008. Uh, that the pharmaceutical industry is ripping off the American people. Also, by the way, a whole lot of illegal activity within the drug companies. Many of them get fined 
for illegal mm -hmm. activity, that the fossil fuel industry is destroying our planet. These are statements that most Americans agree with. And if we're going to make those statements, we can't take their money, but we need money. We've got to overturn this disaster of Citizens United. We've got to move to public funding of elections, but you need money in elections. And the only way, I think, the sensible way is to have strong progressive public policies, get people involved in the political process, and they are prepared to contribute $27 or $30 or $10 or $50. That's the way you fund a progressive party. One last question, Senator, which is that uh, our viewers, our listeners, and across the board, what we hear from progressives is th they want to know what they can do right now. They're looking for some message of hope or some message, some direction, and how to basically how to survive the next four years under Donald Trump. What is your message to progressives who might just feel totally disgusted or disillusioned with politics today? Well, that's not a good enough answer. My, my first response, Bill, would be just that, because I've heard that saying, oh, I'm disgusted, yeah, I'm disillusioned. Yeah. Well, you know what? You don't, have, you don't have the right to hold that view, because the stakes are too great. We're fighting. I've got seven grandchildren. You got some grandchildren? Five. All right. We're fighting for those children. We're fighting for the future of the planet. We're fighting for the elderly. We're fighting for disabled veterans. We're fighting for working people. And it is not acceptable. It is not appropriate for people to say, oh, I'm just disgusted. I'm, I'm out of it. Because if you're out of it, then it is more likely that right wing, the right wing agenda will prevail. So you got, A, you got to get into it. Now, what role do you play? Well, there are a lot of things that we could do right now. The immediate fight we are engaged in, and people can do it, can get engaged in this fight is to say to the Republicans, you live in a district where you have a Republican who voted for a repeal of the Affordable Care Act, you say, fine, Mr. Republican, what's your view to improve that act? All right, you think deductibles are too high? I agree with you. What's your plan to lower deductibles? What's your plan to have the United States join every other major country and guarantee health care to all people? What's your plan to lower the cost of prescription drugs? Get involved, engage. There are elections coming up in 2017 in a number of states around mm -hmm. this country. But it's not only electoral politics. There are a lot of ways that people can get involved. There are many fights out there. Right now, as I mentioned, I am very worried about Trump's views uh, and appointments regarding climate change, all right? We cannot allow them to continue to support fossil, the fossil fuel industry. So back in your own state, work with your state government, for example, in New York State now, on another issue, all right? I, another issue out there is the fact that we got hundreds of thousands of bright young people can't afford to go to college. A lot of people are leaving school deeply in debt. Well, you know what? That issue of making public colleges and universities tuition free that I raised during my presidential campaign, beginning to resonate, beginning to resonate. Talk to your governor if you live in Oklahoma, if you live in Mississippi. Tell them you don't think you should be graduating college $50,000 in debt. Mobilize people. The bottom line on all of this, Bill, is we have been led, the media does this, the establishment does it, they tell the American people in so many words, you're powerless, nothing you can do. Oh yeah, you can vote for president every four years, but you know, maybe even not. But the truth is that if people stand up and fight back, they are powerful. What Republicans hope is they can push through ugly legislation, destructive legislation, and nobody will notice. Our job is to make sure that people do notice, and if they fight back, I think we can win some major battles. Senator Bernie Sanders, so from one young Turk to another, we thank you for your time today, Senator, and your leadership on so many issues. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is The Bill Press Show.